How are we doing? Good morning, good morning. Uh, excited to be with y'all this morning. Uh, I'm excited to preach about sit under the name of Jesus, uh, for him to exercise his power and authority in the room this morning. That's certainly the goal of any of our times together, is not that we would have some good songs or a good sermon, uh, but that the power of Jesus would be on display, that we would gather under the name of Jesus, that we would expect Jesus to do Jesus type of things, supernatural type of things. And so I hope you are ready for whatever it is the Lord wants to do in your heart this morning. We came here to meet with Jesus, and when you meet with Jesus, everything changes, which I hope you realize as we answer this question, who is Jesus? We also hope this is happening around the globe. Uh, just as an FYI, it's about 12 of our people are currently in Mexico, and they will be there till Tuesday. They got there Friday, uh, and they're doing a short trip to serve with La Roca Ministries, which is one of our partners. So your generosity goes to them uh, and many of our international friends. And so this is one of the main partnerships that we have. And they do an amazing work down in Mexico to really serve the community, uh, to serve the poor, to bless and to make sure Jesus' name is known, to plant churches, to serve people in addictions, to serve people living in dumps, to serve prostitutes on the red light district, to serve, to serve, to serve, in all of the dark places, which is what we are all about here and around the world. And so I want to say a quick prayer for our team over there, and I want you to be praying for them the rest of these few days, that the Lord really use them uh, to do some amazing things there, to bless the ministry, and also to transform their own hearts and lives. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bring before you now our team that is currently serving in Mexico, God, and serving in many different dark places to bring the light of Jesus. I pray just that the name of Jesus would have its way, Lord, that you would have supernatural authority and power, and that you would save the lost, and that you would bring hope to the desperate, and that you would do what only you could do in four to five days, God that you would change a city and that you would change hearts. Lord, we pray for our team, for our people. Lord, that you would give them a greater love for the world, God, that you would give them a greater desire to serve, Lord, and to bless the poor, and that you would give them a greater love for Jesus as they see your power at work in their lives, God. Give them unity uh, and give them a great sense of purpose, Lord. I pray that you would bless their time together, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we are in our uh, second week, our third week of our Who is Jesus series. Today we are matching uh, with session two in the Christianity Explored book. There's been a delay on those. We will have a, like a 500 tomorrow, okay? So next Sunday, if you haven't grabbed one yet, please grab one. We do have Mark journals that are available to you, scripture journals for you to read uh, the gospel of Mark yourself and to kind of explore these things yourself or to dive more into them yourself. Remember, one of our goals is for those of you who call themselves uh, City Light people and most importantly, followers of Jesus, over these next seven to eight weeks that you would make it your goal to have one intentional spiritual conversation and to make one intentional invitation to either come to church or to explore Christianity in the Christian Explored book. And if we do those things and make these small seeds, we really believe that a conversation and an invitation could lead to life transformation. And what we're going to see today and be more convinced by is the power of God, especially when we do little acts of obedience. To those of you who are here and you are exploring Jesus, maybe you've been coming the last few weeks, maybe you're watching online, maybe a family or a friend member invited you today, I want to say that I am so glad that you are here. I hope that you learn 
who Jesus really is and can get rid of all the misconceptions you might have. I also ask that you not just give us today, but that you give me the next seven weeks so that you can get a real full picture of who Jesus is before you make a decision about whether you want to follow him or not. Today, and as we're going to be exploring in this series, the issue really at the core is one of identity. If we get the identity of Jesus wrong, then we will get the implications of Jesus' life wrong. If we don't know who he is, really, not what culture says he is, not what he looks like in the news, not what any of these things tell us he is, but if we don't know who he is really as presented in the Bible, then we will not know how to relate to him. And this is very important for both those of you who are not followers of Jesus yet and you're learning about who Jesus is. I don't want you to relate to Jesus as a myth or as something that's not accurate. We called it last week fairy tale Jesus. We tried to debunk some of the ideas of Jesus like Gandhi Jesus, nice teacher Jesus, uh, GQ Jesus, homeboy Jesus. We tried to help you think through uh, maybe you're relating to Jesus as fairy tale Jesus, not actually the real Jesus. And I want you to learn who the real Jesus is so you can relate to him appropriately. And for many of you even who call themselves Christians, even though you might have some basic facts right, you are not increasing in your knowledge of God or growing to know Jesus more. And so you're relating to him wrongly because you're not growing to know him more. The question, who is Jesus, is just as important for those of you who already know him as it is for those of you who don't. And all of us need to progress in our understanding of Jesus so we relate to him in the right way. Many of you have had this experience and you know what it's like to be talking to somebody who you thought was either somebody else or who you didn't know had such and such position and then you walk away and somebody's like, yo, that was blank, you know? They're like, yo, that was the leader of this. Yo, that was the person. I'll, I'll, I'll meet somebody and somebody will be like, yo, you met them last week. I'm like, oh gosh, you know, that's my, my bad, okay? You know, and you had this experience where you're not recognizing who they are or maybe with the mask, you know, you all the mask on, you're like, I think I know you, but I'm not sure. Uh, and so when you don't know who people are, you don't relate to them rightly. This is key to your social interactions and this is key to your relationship with Jesus that if you want to know or relate to him rightly, you must know him rightly. And so as we talked about last week, uh, being bored with Jesus, considering Jesus to be irrelevant, considering him to be just a nice guy, a good friend, or a good teacher that gave some good advice are simply not accurate and they are not options for the real Jesus. As we saw, and what's important to continue to emphasize, the only appropriate responses to Jesus are extreme ones. That's the only way to respond to Jesus, is to be extreme about it. Extreme in love, extreme in hate, extreme in awe. But boredom, considering him to be irrelevant, considering him to be just a nice guy like Gandhi, good teacher, these are simply not options that he left available to us. We went through that whole thing last week, so if you missed that, please listen to it. But now for these chapters, three through five, I'm going to give you some more examples of how people responded to Jesus or what they called him that will make you understand that nobody that was alive when Jesus was on earth ever thought he was just a nice guy, a good teacher, that he was handing out some good advice. Here's some examples of these few chapters of how they responded to Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 11, a demon said this, you are the son of God. Chapter 3, verse 21 his own family said this about him. He is out of his mind, okay? This is his own family, all right? Thanks a lot. Chapter 3, verse 22. He is possessed by Beelzebul, which is basically saying he's the devil himself, okay? This is what some of the Pharisees and religious leaders accused Jesus of. And you do not say this about a nice guy trying to give away good advice, okay? 
he gets called son of God, and then 10 verses later, he gets called the devil, okay? So people are very extreme about Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 41, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 5, verse 7, another demon says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Chapter 5, verse 17, after Jesus did a miracle, we're going to see. And they began to beg Jesus to leave, to depart from their region. They were so afraid of him. Chapter 5, verse 20, and he went away and he began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. What you see time and time again is that the reaction to Jesus, when it's appropriate and according to who he is, is always extreme. Therefore, verse, chapter 4, verse 9 applies well to us today. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear how Jesus really reveals himself and what Jesus is really like. I want to remind us once again of this very important word as we work through the Gospel of Mark, authority. One of the primary characteristics of the life of Jesus is one of authority. What we discussed last week was that this was the primary word in the first three chapters. Jesus is walking around expressing his authority and flexing on everyone around him. And the thing that bothered everyone the most was that his authority wasn't given by anyone, by a government, wasn't earned by a resume, it wasn't given by a status in society. His authority was inherent to himself. And so this drove everyone crazy, and this is probably what drives you crazy as well, is that you do not want to submit to the authority of Jesus. Every act of disobedience, even for those who follow Jesus, is an act against his authority. One of our main issues is that we don't want to submit to his authority. And as we're going to see throughout the life of Jesus, one of the things that he requires to relate to him rightly is to submit to his authority. And today we're going to see his authority be extreme over pretty much everything, namely these four things. Jesus shows his authority over nature, demons, disease, and even death. And so chapters three and four, we're gonna, we're gonna kind of blur over most of that for now because we have a lot of, a lot of uh, ground to cover. And I wanna show you three very specific stories. But what I just want you to simply see from a couple places in chapters three and four is that when Jesus was teaching, I wanna to continue to get rid of the nice teacher guy. Okay, I'm gonna kick him out of this place. Jesus was not that. And I wanna show you what Jesus was actually teaching about. He wasn't walking around giving away good advice. It's not what he's doing. He's walking around with authority, giving away commands. In chapter three, verse 27, he tells everyone that he himself is the strong man who plunders the devil's house, basically. And he walks up and basically says, I am over Satan and all spiritual things. Which once again, just on the record, nice guy, good teacher doesn't say that. That's just not something he says. That's why last week we said that Jesus is either Lord or he's a lunatic. Those are your only two options. And if you're receiving Jesus as just a good guy, you have received him wrongly. So he claims to be stronger than Satan and to basically bind Satan and be the strong man in Satan's house. He also claims to continually speak about the kingdom of God. Chapter 4 is all about the kingdom of God. It's about entering into and what does the kingdom of God looks like. It is not just about nice sayings and good advice. Jesus' primary teaching was always about the kingdom of God, not about the kingdom of man or how to be a better person or five steps to your self-esteem or five different ways to be a better husband. This is not what Jesus is teaching about nor what he's concerned about. Jesus is concerned primarily primarily, and teaches primarily about the kingdom of God. He does, not, he does not 
give his time away to giving you nice advice to live a better life. This is not what he's doing. And so therefore, you cannot put him in the nice teacher category. And so now I want to look at three different stories. And we're going to take some time to read through each one of these uh, as we go throughout. To give you three different pictures, once again, of who Jesus is and how he presents himself. So Mark 4, 35, let's start right there. It's the same story that Jess read, and she preached a better sermon than I did on this. So we'll see how this goes. Just verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, and he said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obeys him? So this is our first window first picture into the life of Jesus through one of his miracles and stories, just like we did last week. A couple of things you ought to know. Number one, these were obviously experienced fishermen, and so for them to be afraid they were going to die means the storm was really, 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 really bad. Okay, these guys are used to storms, they're used to rocky boats, they're used to things going a little crazy, but because they're experienced, they would normally not freak out. So because they're freaking out means this is like, crazy storm, and this isn't like, oh, a few waves, okay? This is a crazy storm going on, and they're right in the middle of it, and this is where we're going to learn about Jesus' authority over nature. What I love that Jesus reveals to us is that he does not ask God to do anything like an Old Testament prophet would do or like any regular prophet would do, to say, on behalf of God, storm, be quiet. No, when Jesus gets up, He says, by the authority I have within myself, peace, be still, shut up. This is what he's saying. One of the things I love about this story is that he rebukes the storm with the same word he uses to rebuke the demon in chapter 1. And so he's treating the storm like a little demon, saying the same way I showed power over the spiritual realm, I'm going to show my power over the natural realm. I'm going to get up. I'm not going to ask anyone for help. I'm going to say because of the authority I have within myself, be quiet. And Jesus, once again, shows the authority that he has is within himself by nature of the fact that he is the son of God. And the disciples now, now that they're seeing his identity more clearly, they're beginning to respond more appropriately. And like we said in the beginning, the ho-hum, oh, cool, sure, whatever, that response to Jesus is not appropriate and it is not according to who he is. If your response to Jesus is okay, cool, then you haven't met the real one yet. It's not available to you. Look, they're freaking out. And they say they're filled with great fear. And one of the commentaries I read made this great point, that they were more afraid after the storm shut up than before. They were more afraid when things were calm than when things were crazy because they now are sitting in the boat with someone who is more powerful than the storm they were afraid of. And so when they identify Jesus as having power over this storm, now the power that they were afraid of in the storm is nothing compared to the power that's sitting next to them in the boat. And so what are they? They're terrified. Of course they would be. 
Imagine if like a tornado was sweeping away everything around us, and I just walked outside in front of all of you, and I said, tornado, go away, and it just disappeared. And I walked back in. Would you be more afraid of me or less at that point? I don't think you'd be saying, oh, thanks, Nate. I think you'd be saying, ah, you know, like, I don't know what to do with this person. What do I do with you now? That's not what I thought you were. And this is what they're doing. They're saying, ah, this is Jesus. He just told the storm to be quiet. Okay, okay, okay. And they're freaking out. And they're more afraid now than they were in the very first time. Their responses to Jesus only get more and more extreme. And this is the appropriate way to respond to him when you realize his power over all things. Now, here's where things get personal in this story. Because what do they say in verse 38? They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And some of you are currently sitting in your seat or watching wherever you're watching from and thinking the very same thing about Jesus. You're in the midst of a storm or a trial or something going on, and it seems like to you God might as well be asleep. It's not helping you. It's not saying anything to you. It's not encouraging you. He's not changing your circumstance. And to you, God might as well be asleep. And the question you have isn't, can God help me? It's, does he care to help me? Is he listening to me? Is he aware of the fact that I'm in the middle of this storm? Does he know that I'm currently afraid? And does he care? Jesus, they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And maybe this is what's keeping some of you or some of your friends and family from coming to Jesus at all, is that you are questioning whether the God who is presented in the Bible actually really does care. Because you assume that if Jesus has all the power he needs and all the love, then why would I go through any storms? Why would God let this happen to me? Why would God let this happen to someone else? If Jesus is all-powerful, and he can still the storm, and if Jesus actually does love me, then why am I in the storm? Why did I go through that? Why am I going through this? And because of your circumstances, you're beginning to question Jesus. Not necessarily whether he's there, but whether he loves you and cares for you. And really, ultimately, whether he's someone that you can trust. Because right now, it seems like he's asleep. Or when that terrible thing happened to you, it seemed like he was asleep. And here's something you must understand, is that the love and power of Jesus do not mean that we will not have storms, but simply that he will be with us in them. The fact that Jesus is all love and all power does not mean that we will not have storms, but that he will be with us in them. And here's where you have to understand his authority and his power and the fact that he is completely assured in who he is. When they tell him, do you not care, he doesn't get up and say, okay, yeah, I care. Here's some reasons why. Let me explain to you what I'm doing. No, no, no. Okay, no, he doesn't do that. He gets up. He says to the storm, be quiet. And then he looks at them and he says, why are you so afraid? Which sounds like a dumb question. You're like, I was about to die. That seems like a pretty good reason to be afraid. If there's ever a reason to be afraid, almost dying would be a great time to be afraid. And so he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
And the question isn't directed to their fear of dying. Their question is directed to the fact that they don't trust him. He's saying, haven't I revealed myself enough to you to know that if I'm in the boat with you, you're going to be okay? Not that life will always go well, and not that things certainly will turn out as you like. All these disciples ended up getting killed, beheaded, martyred. It didn't didn't end well all the time. And the next storm they went through maybe turned out worse than this one. But what Jesus is revealing to them is that he operates on a different timeline than they think. Think about Jesus in this way, that they were so afraid, and while they were so afraid, he was so assured. He didn't panic. He didn't wake up and say, oh, ah, you know? What am I supposed to do now? Okay, okay, let me think. What are my options? I can say, be quiet. I can do this. No. He was assured. He woke up. I imagine him just like walking chilly to the front of the boat, you know? They're freaking out. Jesus, do you not care? He's probably not even paying attention to them. He's like, just shut up, okay? And then he walks over here, and he's just calm. He's just calm. And he's like, be quiet. Just as calm as ever. I don't think he had to yell at or anything. Just be quiet. And it goes, because Jesus is operating according to a different plan than you. And listen, this is so important. His security in his plan and his assurance of his authority may look for a minute like a lack of care. He is so assured of his authority and he is so in charge and his plan is going according to his purpose that he's going about things in such a way that may look careless. But the root of it is because he's so assured in his plan and his authority. He doesn't have to panic. He doesn't have to rush. He doesn't have to do it the way that you think he needs to do it. And therefore, you ought to know that when things appear careless, you are being cared for. This is an act of faith. This is why he says, do you have no faith? That when things appear careless, you are being cared for. And that because Jesus is so assured of his authority and his plan, don't mistake his timing with a lack of care. Because some of you right now are still in the storm and you're still asking the question, Jesus, do you care? And what we're going to see ultimately is the answer is always yes because of the cross. Here's something for you to consider. Even when we doubt, he delivers. To write that down, to live by it, to say even when we doubt, he delivers. He doesn't say, well, because you had no faith, I'm going to make this storm last longer to teach you a lesson. No, he steps in even in their lack of faith, even in their doubt, and he delivers. So when we get the identity of Jesus right, we will choose faith over fear. And what some of you ought to consider is that the storm is revealing the status of your faith. The storm reveals the status of your faith. Currently, right now, the thing you're going through, or the thing you have been through, or the thing you will go through in the near future is going to reveal the status of your faith. Do you really trust him? Do you really know him? But even in your doubt, he will deliver. So let's read this next story. Let's read this next story. So when we get the identity of Jesus right, we'll choose faith over fear. That's one of the things you ought to remember about getting the identity of Jesus right. When I know him rightly, I will relate to him through faith. Okay, I won't be afraid. Chapter 5, verse 1, let's read this as quickly as we, as we can. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Oh, chapter 5, yeah, there we go. 
And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, he broke the shackles in pieces, no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, and they entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. And now you're going to look, when people are clarified on the identity of Jesus, what is their response? Verse 14, And the herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and the country. And the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were excited, and they were thankful, and they were feeling safe. No, and they were afraid. Why? Just like the disciples The power that is in Jesus is greater than the power of the storm, and now they're seeing the power in Jesus is greater than the power of this demon. And so they are appropriately afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demons of this man and the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to leave, to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. How he has mercy on you, which is a great verse for your life if you call yourself a Christ follower. And he went away and he began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone had marveled. I want you to notice a couple of things. The first thing is when you look through the story, there's this phrase that I love in the middle of it and it says, no one had the strength to subdue him. No one had the strength to subdue him. But as soon as Jesus shows up, the demon starts begging him to have mercy. You see the drastic contrast. No one had the strength to subdue him. No one had the strength to control him. They couldn't do anything no matter what they did. But as soon as Jesus shows up, that which was overwhelming to everyone else is nothing in the presence of Jesus. That which was overwhelming to everyone else is nothing in the presence of Jesus. And the demon begins begging, immediately recognizing the authority of Jesus. And I have a question for many of you now already with the things in your life that may be giving you a great difficulty that you can't seem to subdue or change or control. Here's the question. Have you tried everything except the presence of Jesus? Have you tried everything except the presence of Jesus? Maybe you have put chains around it. You've put systems in place to control it. You've tried to distance yourself or isolate yourself from it. You've tried to keep it away from you or other people. But you've tried everything except the presence of Jesus. But it was only when Jesus showed up that this problem had finally met its match. And so it is for you and for me. Have you tried everything except the presence of Jesus? 
Have you asked for Jesus to show up and to clarify who he is and to be present and to be the one who's leading in the situation and to be the one who can change the thing in front of you? Have you tried everything except the presence of Jesus? Because what may be overwhelming to you is nothing to him. One of the things else I want you to see about this is, okay, so they get this guy. This is so, they manage his, imagine this. They get this, he's going crazy. So they're trying to manage his craziness. That's the goal of everyone around him. I'm going to manage this crazy guy. So they get chains and they try to manage his craziness. They try to isolate him and manage his craziness. Their goal is to keep him away from everyone because they don't have the authority to help him. But God shows up. And instead of trying to manage his craziness, he does a miracle in the midst of his craziness. And instead of putting him in chains, God shows up and releases his chains. And instead of trying to keep him away from everyone, God shows up and sends him to everyone. Think how different this is. They're trying to manage, but God's going to do a miracle. And I wonder if so many of you are spending so much time trying to manage the change, trying to manage the crisis, trying to manage your life, that you haven't given Jesus a chance to show up and do the miracle. You're trying to manage the problem. You're trying to manage it, and you've grabbed change, and you've grabbed all the things that you can find. But when God shows up, his goal is not management. It's miracle working. When God shows up, his goal is not to create more change, it's to release them. And I want you to see this, especially those of you who are still hesitant about following Jesus, because you think following Jesus will take away from your life, or you think following Jesus and his rules will make everything be boring and terrible for you, that it will give you more change. What I want you to understand is that everywhere you go, people are trying to manage you by putting chains around who you are and what you need to be, by telling you who you should be and what you should think. Jesus' goal is not to give you more change, it's to release the chains you already have. You've gotten Jesus all wrong by thinking he wants me to live a certain way and that's going to put chains on my life. No, 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 no. You expressing yourself and trying to live the way the world is trying to live is putting chains on your life. Jesus shows up. His goal is not to get more change. His goal is to release you from your change. Jesus shows up. His goal is not to isolate you, to keep you away. His goal is to save you and send you. This is totally, drastically different. And when Jesus shows up, everyone freaks out and they are afraid, rightfully so. So when the identity is right, the response is right. The fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. I want you to understand something here. When you look at the life of this, this man, when he changes his life and Jesus gives him a calling now. So to those of you who are with Christ, who love Christ and know Christ, and maybe to those of you who are exploring, this is the call that Jesus puts on your life. I want you to see two very simple reactions from the demon-possessed one after Jesus has changed his life. The first is he tries to get in the boat with him. He begs him. And what you see is when your life is changed by Jesus, the first change is that you want to be with him. Do you see that? The first change is that you want to be with him. Not that just you believe in him, not that you got the facts right, not that you have the questions answered, but that you want him. I want to be with you. Can I go in the boat with you? He's begging him, saying, can I come with you? I love you. You changed my life. I don't just believe you. I want you. And that's what Jesus is calling you into this morning. And some of you maybe have stopped at simply believing in who he is. And you haven't gotten to the point where you want him. And what I want you to see is when your life is really changed by Jesus, the very first thing that changes is not your behavior. It's your desires that you want him. 
And as soon as Jesus saves this man and changes his life, the first thing he wants to do is get in the boat with him. And maybe some of you, as we've been talking about, you have gotten bored with who Jesus is. You have gotten lackluster in your response to him. You come to church and you do the right things, but you have lost your first love. And you have lost the desire for him to love him and to know him. And Jesus is calling you back this morning to say, when I saved you, the first thing you wanted was me. And let it continue to be so. Do you want him or do you just believe in him? When your life is really changed by Jesus, the first thing that changes is not your behavior, it's your desires. And the greatest desire a Christian should have, hear me, is to want to be with Jesus. That should be the greatest desire in your life. And if it's not, there needs to be repentance and asking God for help and change. To be a Christian is to want Jesus, period not just to trust him and know the facts, is to want him. The second thing we see this, so a life changed by Jesus wants him, desires to be with him, and a life changed by Jesus desires to tell everyone about him. This simple story gives us the simple truth of what does it mean to have your life changed by Jesus. It's that I want him, and then I want to tell everyone about him, and that's it. And if I spend the rest of my life wanting him and telling everyone about him, I'm going to be fulfilling the thing that Jesus saved me to do. It's simple, it's simple. Being a Christian in some ways is very simple to say, here are your two basic reactions. If you get the identity of Jesus right, and if he really has changed and saved your life, then these two things will be true about you, that you want him and that you want to tell everyone about him. Not that you need your pastor to tell you everyone about him, and not that you need some spurring on. No, in your heart, you want to tell people about him. And you don't need somebody getting up and saying, go tell people about Jesus. These are the two things that should mark the life of a Christian. And so as we go back to the basics and back to our relationship with Jesus, have you gotten so distracted by the other things you do that you have lost the very two things that mark a changed life, that you want him and that you want to tell others about him? Are these two things true of you, those of you who would call yourself Christian, and if they're not, the Lord is asking you to return to what he saved you for in the first place. Something you ought to consider is this, that a changed life is a rearranged life. You cannot say my life has been changed by Jesus without rearranging it. You cannot say Jesus has saved me and then continue to live the same way that you did in the beginning. This makes no sense. A changed life is a rearranged life. Everything about this man's life changed. And everything about the way he lived his life and his priorities and the things he did were rearranged. So has your life been changed but not rearranged? Have you met the real Jesus? So when we get the identity of Jesus right, the first one, we'll choose faith over fear. And now when we get the identity of Jesus right, we will want to be with him and we want to tell everyone about him. Let's read this last story. As we close, chapter 5, verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side, remember, Mark is like a Jason Bourne movie, okay? It's just bam, 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 okay, action. Don't ever tell me reading the Bible is boring because you haven't read it if you ever say that. Okay, chapter 21. When Jesus had crossed again into the boat on the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet, and he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and 
who had suffered much under many physicians, and she spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. Maybe some of you are in that position now. You've tried everything, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and you find yourself getting no better, but worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment, for she said, Eve, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, while he was still speaking, lest you have forgotten that there is a man whose daughter is dying. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who had said, Your daughter is now dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, I imagine him like looking him in the eye, eye to eye, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly, and he entered it, and he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. And so now, as people continue to get the identity of Jesus right, the demon begs Jesus, and then now we have a ruler of a synagogue begging Jesus and a sick woman begging Jesus. And what we're going to see continually is that Jesus has authority everywhere he goes. He steps in front of a demon-possessed man, authority. He steps in front of a ruler of a synagogue, authority. He steps in front of sickness, authority. Everywhere Jesus goes, he has authority. Now get this, when the ruler, this ruler, he's the ruler of the synagogue. Now remember, this makes him a religious ruler of the time, kind of a big deal. And the religious rulers at the time, at least most of them, did not like Jesus. They did not like what Jesus is doing. So for him to run away from all of them and to go bowing and begging in front of Jesus is a huge sign of humility. And he's willing to be said, any, he's willing to have people say anything about him to get the answer to the solution that he seeks. Because he's gotten the identity of Jesus right. You would see that? As soon as he gets the identity of Jesus right, healer, savior, he doesn't care what anybody else says. You see the connection? Now he's desperate. I don't care what my peers think about me. I don't care what my coworkers say about me. I don't care what they think I am or what they think I believe. I have the identity of Jesus right, and my only hope is in him. And so he runs, and he begs, and he gets before him, and he makes a fool of himself. 
You have to see this. A ruler of the synagogue, prestigious religious elite, would never do a thing like this. And he runs in front of Jesus, and he gets down, and he starts begging him and pleading with him. And because he got the identity of Jesus right, and because obviously he loves his daughter, he does not care what people think. And maybe for some of you, you are so obsessed with others' things because you haven't gotten the identity of Jesus right yet. And you're not desperate for him like you ought to be. And you're letting other things get in the way of pursuing him wholeheartedly. We see the same thing from this lady who, once again, she gets the identity of Jesus right. And so she breaks all protocol. She is not supposed to be hanging out in this crowd. She is certainly not supposed to be touching his garment without permission. She is not supposed to be doing the things that she's doing, but she doesn't care anymore because she's gotten the identity of Jesus right. And she knows now if I can get close and even touch him, this man who is God can heal me. Now you see the connection? When the identity of Jesus right, then desperation to Jesus follows. When I get the identity right, then I become desperate for him. And if you're not experiencing desperation for Jesus, that he would come, that he would work, that he would do all the things and reveal himself, then maybe your identity of him is wrong. Because we see the desperation play out in the lives of these women and this man. Now, this is just like the story with the disciples. Jesus is both showing you who he is and he's also showing you how to relate to him. Because you have to remember the story. The man comes to Jesus and he has a request. And he says, my daughter is near death. You have to come. You have to come right now. And so Jesus responds and says, okay, I'll come. And what you would think you'd want from Jesus is like, run as fast as you can. Get there as fast as you can. Definitely don't get distracted. And so he's in the middle of this great crowd. They're all following him. Say, let's go see what happens to this little girl. They all heard the story, okay? He's begging Jesus in front of everyone. So they hear what he's asking. They're like, oh, this will be interesting. Let's go find out. And so they follow him together. There's this big momentum towards this little girl. Obviously, everyone says, yeah, we want to see something good happen for this little girl. The dad has to be just anxious and just lost his mind, you know, just like, oh, I can't take this anymore. All this momentum is going this way, and then Jesus stops. And he turns around. And can you imagine in the moment, nobody knew what had happened with that lady, and Jairus has to be thinking, no, my daughter is that way. Right? That's what I'd be thinking. What are you? And Jesus stops. He's like, wait, 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 nope, keep walking. You do one of those, grab my legs, oh, come on, let's go. And Jesus stops, and not only does he stop, he turns around. And what I would see from here is that he's now facing the other way. When he's supposed to be going this way to save the little girl, now he's facing this way. And at the time, nobody knows why. They don't know why Jesus stopped. They don't know why Jesus changed direction. They want Jesus to go this way, but he stopped. And you have to see how Jesus is teaching you to relate to him because he's teaching us what faith looks like. He's teaching us about his perfect timing He's teaching us about our ability to trust him, even when things don't make sense. He's teaching us about his ability to bring things back from places we could never understand. He's teaching us about how assured he is in his plan. He already knows. He knows the girl is going to die while he's talking to them. 
Who knows how long this conversation lasted? It looks short here. Maybe it was really long. And maybe the girl dies while he's talking to them. And you got to think, was that worth it? What are you doing, Jesus? Everything fell apart. You know the story of Lazarus. When Jesus finds out that Lazarus is ill, it says that he waited two days before going to see him. And while Jesus waited, Lazarus died. And while Jesus is being distracted, while Jesus is not going the direction that we want him to go, this little girl dies. And the same question from the disciples presents itself in the mind of Jairus, even though he doesn't say it, we all know what he's thinking. Jesus, what are you doing? Do you care about my little girl? Do you care about my life? Do you remember the prayer when I asked you to help me? What are you doing now? We were going together, and now you stop. And he's got to be thinking in his heart, Jesus, 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 why are you getting distracted? And so it is with many of you today, and with many of us in our trials and struggles in life, Maybe it feels like today, not only is Jesus sleeping in the boat, but he stopped when he was on the way to help you. And not only did he stop, but he began to consider someone else's pain. And he began to be distracted. And maybe you feel like he's not paying attention anymore to the thing that you've asked or the need that's presented in your life. And therefore you question him. You hesitate to follow him because he seems to be stopped precisely at the moment that you needed him the most. But what we have to see and have to begin to understand is when we get the identity of Jesus right, we will learn to live by trust and faith. That Jesus does care. And how do I know that Jesus cares? Because of a cross. Because ultimately, Jesus showed his love for me and you, not by making everything go right in our life and not by helping us all the time in the ways that we think we need help and not by solving every problem and healing every current present sickness on this earth. He showed his love for me ultimately by dying on the cross and taking the payment for sin on himself that I could have life eternal and that I could live in a place where there will be no more suffering, no more sickness, no more disease, and no more death. And the thing that I'm asking him for now that's making me question his love is the thing that he died to secure and give me forever. You see what I'm saying? The thing that I'm asking him for now healing, help, deliverance, assurance, the thing I'm asking for him now. He died to secure that I could have it forever. And this is what it means to live by faith, that even though the storm is raging, and even though I might very well die in the midst of it, and even while things might not feel better or get circumstantially better, Jesus did not die to give me 80 years of a good life. Jesus died to give me billions of years of an eternal happiness. And this allows me to live by faith. 
while also recognizing that Jesus does often and will, because he loves us, work in the midst of our current problems and pain. And we can go to him in faith, because when all else fails, we have learned that Jesus prevails. And we can trust him. And when it fails, he'll prevail. And I can trust him. But even if he doesn't come through, like I'm asking him to, even if he stops or seems to be asleep, I know he loves me, not because what I can see and not because things are getting better for me, but because he died for me. And so I bring my questions all the way back to the cross. And by faith, I see his love and his blood poured out and his body broken for me. And I learn in that moment that he loves me so much that if he's not doing what I'm asking him to do, he has a better plan in mind. And because he died for me, I can live in trust to him. And I can trust him to do what is best, that he is walking in assurance, that he knows his plan. And that when everything seems lost, he is able to bring it back from the dead. This is what it means to relate to him rightly. When I get the identity of Jesus right, when I understand what does it mean for Jesus to love me, when I understand what does it mean for Jesus to stop when I need him to go? What does it mean for Jesus to appear to be asleep when I need him to wake up? What does it mean for me to relate to Jesus in my pain and in my storm when I cannot see any resolution? It's to ultimately see him on a cross and to see an empty grave and to know that in him I find my eternal life and I can trust him. And so therefore, I can walk right now in authority and power. I can ask him as my healer and provider to do things no one else can do. And he just may very well do it. But even if he doesn't, he has already supplied everything I need for an eternal happiness. And Jesus is far more concerned about us being healthy and happy forever than just being healthy and happy for now. Let me pray. Let's respond to him rightly now. Heavenly Father, we have seen... In Jesus, that there is life, there is power over nature, that there is power over the spiritual realm and demons, that there is power over disease and even power over death. I pray now, Lord, that we would submit to the authority of Jesus and that we would trust the love and power of Jesus now. Give us faith, Lord, to walk the life you've called us to walk to trust you in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the sickness, to have faith for healing and faith for provision and faith for miracles, and at the same time to have a stable trust that you're always good and that you always do what's best and that your timing is always perfect. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, let's respond to